Thank you, Berger, for getting all that technology sorted out. Um, I just lost a wee bit more hair sitting there, if that's possible. Um, but Paul, thank you for your, for your kind words. Um, can I just say while I'm up here that uh, Gail and I have been coming just over a year and uh, we have really been incredibly blessed by so many of you in Carrick Fergus Vineyard. Probably even more so since our granddaughter started coming in September because children break down barriers and make it more difficult for you to avoid going for coffee and things like that. So I just want to say thank you to everyone for making us so welcome. Okay, it's, uh, it's working, yeah, <laughs> panic. I don't trust it now. <laughs> uh, it's that time of the year again, isn't it? We all decide to make a fresh start. By the way, can I apologize? I hate holding a microphone. I just hate it. Uh, I would never have done well in the X Factor. So if my voice fades away, somebody shout at me or something. Uh, it's that time of year when we all decide to make a fresh start. And uh, we're all going to eat less. We're all going to drink less. We're all going to exercise more. We're all going to lose a few pounds that we put on at Christmas and maybe, maybe try to get things back on track spiritually as well. We're not going to miss any single days in the Bible in one year up. <laughs> yeah, you do that as well. You, you catch up about every three weeks. Um, but, you know, taking the first couple of resolutions I mentioned there about losing weight and eating less and drinking less and all the rest of it, I don't know. Those things last for a few weeks sometimes. How many of us are planning or have already joined the gym in January? No? Brian has. Or how many of us go to the gym regularly and you're disgusted by the fat new people like me coming in? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm glad to see from Facebook that Stephen Hillis has no plans to join the gym. Um, I'm just like Stephen. I'm not one of those people who joins the gym in January. Oh, no, no. My brother-in-law works in Carrick Leisure Centre, and I went down and I signed up, and I joined the gym in September. And I even bought lovely new trainers in that cheap place at Junction 1. And I went regularly to the gym three times a week for just over a week. <laughs> so maybe, maybe we won't keep New Year's resolutions, but maybe it would be good for us individually and as a church family um, just to reflect this morning, as Paul has said, on who we are individually and who God wants us to be and as a church See, we can't see or fully understand God's purposes in everything. But what we can do maybe this morning for just a wee while is to look at the account of creation. And that's why I've called this morning Beginnings. I want us to go back to creation. To look at the account of creation, to see what God said about creation. About how he set creation in order. And what we're really looking for are God's purposes. I want to read something from F.B. Meyer. It was written over 100 years ago, so it's a bit old-fashioned. It's not politically correct in any way at all, but it's a beautifully written description of humanity before and after the fall. <clears throat> Man was placed in the world like a king in a palace, stored with all to please him, monarch and sovereign of all the lower orders of creation, the sun to labor for him, the moon to light his nights, or lead the waters around the earth in tides. 
elements of nature to be his slaves and messengers, flowers to scent his pathway, fruit to please his taste, birds to sing for him, animals to work for him and carry him, and man himself amid all this as God's vice agent. This is man as God made him. But we see him now as sin has made him. His crown is rolled in the dust and tarnished. His sovereignty is strongly disputed by the lower orders of creation. The earth only supplies him with food after arduous toil. The animals only serve him after they've been tamed and trained, while vast numbers of them roam the forest, setting him at defiance. So degraded has man become through sin that he's bowed before the objects that he was supposed to command, has prostrated his royal form at shrines dedicated to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. So this is how we are. This is as sin has left us. But, you know, it wasn't like that at the beginning. That wasn't the way God intended us to be. And to see what he wanted for us originally, we need to go back to Eden. We need to go back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, and I'm, I'm reading this little bit from the message. It says this, God spoke, let us make human beings in our image, make them reflecting our nature, And God created human beings. He made them, he created them God-like, reflecting his nature. I don't know all that many people here. I don't know if there are any architects in the the room this morning. Anybody an architect or? Oh, good. Oh, dear. So I'm probably going to talk rubbish now. But um, I know that when an architect designs a building, uh, his or her starting point is usually the purpose What's the building designed to be used for? What's it designed to do? Because we need to remember in all this that what Jesus did for us isn't just about forgiveness. It's also about redemption. And not just redemption of individuals, but redemption of creation. Restoration of creation. It's about building the kingdom of God here on earth, here in Carrickfergus. And looking at Genesis 1 and 2, what were the things we can suggest from the Bible that humans, that mankind was designed to do? And what are the things that God wants to restore to us through his son and through his children, through us? I want to suggest, and it's not a nice word to use on the first Sunday in January, but I want to suggest that the first thing we were designed to do was to work. Anybody going back to work tomorrow after the holidays? It's horrible, isn't it? Yeah, I am too. Although it's one of those teacher training days that parents love so much. So, <laughs> But Genesis 1, 26 and, and chapter 2 expands a little bit on it as well in verses 4 and verse 15. God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet appeared, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up. The Lord had not yet sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. The Lord took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to take care of it. So we were entrusted by God with the responsibility of overseeing and managing his creation. And one of God's purposes in creating us was that we should work. Now, I want to be careful. I don't mean by work, I don't just mean nine to five employment. Because that doesn't 
work for everybody. That doesn't apply to everyone. I mean, I'm a school principal. I only work from nine to three, uh, you know. Um, but there are many other ways that God has planned and designed and shaped for us to work. Work is not where we go to certain hours of the day. Work is the person God has made us to be and the way he has shaped us and the things that we do to bring glory to him. That might be in a caring role at home. It might be in a voluntary role. It might be like Malcolm visiting in the prison. It might be working in the food bank. It might be just coming alongside others who are needy or vulnerable or lonely. It's all work. It's all what God intended for us to do. And I would suggest that work is intended to give us four things. First of all, a sense of dignity and self-worth. Many of us, and probably especially men, uh, have our need for significance partially met in, in what we do in our jobs. And that's why very often, I know I'm very guilty of this, when I meet somebody for the first time, I quite often ask them what they do, which probably isn't the right thing to do at all, but it gives me something to talk about. I'm not very good at polite conversation. But we gain significance and dignity from what we do, and, and that's how God intended it. The second thing our work gives us is a sense of fulfillment. God intended us to, be, to, to gain satisfaction from our work. Work's not intended to be drudgery, where you're watching the clock, where you're hoping, you know, it's, it's nearly time to get out of here. Um, can you think of a time when you were so engrossed in something? Maybe it was something you were building or something you were making. Maybe it was cooking a, a nice meal for friends. Maybe it was preparing a song or practicing to lead worship. Um, whatever it was, you were so engrossed in what you were doing that the time just flew by, and before you realized it, three or four hours had gone. That's what work was like as God intended. Thirdly, it gives us an opportunity to serve other people. Many of us can say that we've been shaped and designed, and God has led us to a place where we are skilled or experienced or gifted in certain ways. And that's not accidental. And do you really think that all of that, which is God-given, is only intended for use in church? Of course it's not. And fourthly, our work gives us an opportunity to serve God. And this is the highest vision we can have for our work. And that should apply even tomorrow morning, even when I go into those grumpy, those lovely teachers, you know, we talk about, you know, getting Santa down off the walls before the kids come back on Tuesday. But, you know, it's that serving God. That serving God. 1 Corinthians 10 and 31 talks about that, about everything we do should be done for God's glory. There were three workmen doing the same job somewhere on a building site. The first one said, I'm breaking stones. The second one said, I'm earning money third one said, I'm building a cathedral. Because he could see far enough to know the purpose. He was cooperating with the architect. And we, we work to cooperate with the architect, with God. We work to bring glory to him. Let's just try to personalize that for our church for a wee minute. <clears throat> you see, I would suggest that, I need to be careful here because I'm, I'm naming a few people's names. I hope I'm getting them right. But I would suggest that maybe Gail and Aaron and Valerie and others here were gifted and designed to care for people medically, 
people who are vulnerable, people who are frightened, and to bring God's presence into that work. There's others here as well, and in doing that, they're bringing glory to God. And then you've got Kathy and Jess and Emma and Andrea. I don't know, everybody in Vineyard seems to be a midwife. I don't know they're not, why there are not millions of children running around here. But again, we're designed and gifted by God to bring new life into the world. What a fantastic job. I would hate it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, again, they, they bring their skill, but they also bring God into those situations. And then there's Terry. He was designed to lead people gently into the superior driving experience that is Honda ownership. <laughs> but, you know, joking aside, who knows? Who knows what is in this church? Who knows what is waiting to happen? Who knows except God? The glory that's going to be brought to his name by the skills and the personality and the gifts given to our children to I can't name them all, but to Ethan and Owen and Eve and Evie and Eva and Joshua and Maya and Hope and Hannah and Talia, Libby, Noah, Vanessa, Finn, so many others. Eva, help me out with those. You've forgotten about him and you've forgotten about her. But, you know, God created humans to work and in doing so to bring glory to himself. What God made us to be as individuals... Um, how he shaped us, I think, really reflects the sort of church he wants us to be as well. I don't think it's any accident when you look around Vineyard and when you get talking to people, how many of us here are involved in some way in, in a caring role, whether it's in work, whether it's at home, whether it's in church. This is a really caring place, and that, I think, reflects the sort of church God wants us to be. He made us to work, and he also made us to worship and I think very often the two things can go together. Is that working? Yeah. Genesis 2 and 7 says, God formed man out of dirt from the ground and blew into his nostrils the breath of life. The man came alive, a living soul. Are there any lapsed Presbyterians here like me? How many of us grew up in a Presbyterian church? Maybe went to Sunday school there. Okay, question one in the shorter catechism. What is man's chief end? Wow. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. See, who says beating children to make them learn doesn't work? <laughs> but one of the purposes of the church is to worship. And that's an echo of one of God's purposes for creating us. He created us to worship him, to glorify him, in what we do, and to worship him in how we live. And enjoyment of God is tied up with worship of him. C.S. Lewis, I don't know if you, I love C.S. Lewis's writing. Some of them are really far too clever for me, but I just think sometimes he expresses things in a, in a way that just reaches me. He wrote in his reflections on the Psalms, I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The word rings with praise, lovers praising their beloved, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wine, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, children, flowers, 
and that is strange, but rare stamps, rare beetles, and sometimes even politicians or teachers. <laughs> I had never noticed that just as men spontaneously praise what they value, so they urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't that magnificent? And so on. The psalmist, in telling everyone to praise God, is doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about and enjoy. See, worship is not just what we do and what we sing and what we play in an hour on a Sunday morning. It's about giving God the honor that's his by right. Our word worship, I'm not going to put this up on the screen, but our word worship comes from the old English word, which we would, we would render today as worship which means giving someone the honor due to them. This is one of the reasons God created us, and we fulfill it with all of our lives, not just on Sunday mornings. One of those ladies with, I don't know whether it's expensive glasses and nice teeth, or nice glasses and expensive teeth, that Chantel always shares on Facebook. I think it was Sarah Bessie, and she had this up yesterday morning, and Sarah Bessie put it really well. In fact, I think she'd read my notes. She said, God doesn't differentiate between the sacred and the secular for us. All of our work, all of our life can honor God. See, a wee advertisement here. It's only recently that Gail and I have plucked up the courage to go to Deeper on Sunday nights. And I'm glad we did, and I wish we'd gone earlier. If you haven't been, you should. The next one, I think, is the 25th of January. Try to get there and experience a time of worship together that's really special. And next weekend, with the 24-hour prayer, we're going to be starting and finishing with a time of worship. So let's resolve to be there for, for both of those times. And maybe we'll keep one, New Year, keep one New Year's resolution, even if we break all the others. Because God wants us to be with him, and he wants us to be with each other. Brings me on to the next point. Genesis 3, 8 and 9 says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, Where are you? See, the order and the orderliness of creation expressed <clears throat> the relationships between God, mankind, and the world. You notice in Genesis chapter 1, each time God makes something, he speaks. And he says, it is good. And finally, upon completion of it all, he says, it is very, very good. And those relationships that we, we see then have now been distorted. The evidence of this is really the part of us that's missing from the rest of creation. There's something different about humans that the rest of creation doesn't have. We are, whether we like it or not, we are spiritual beings. We have a, a spiritual dimension, and we're designed for a relationship, not just with each other, but for a relationship with God. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11 says that God has set eternity in the hearts of men. And that would suggest we can never really be complete or satisfied outside that relationship. We have a spiritual thirst. We have a spiritual need. And to go back to the catechism again, the central aspect of our lives is that we can love God, worship him, and enjoy him. 
and enjoy an eternal relationship that starts here on earth. And you know, relationships are what matter most. Let me say that again. Relationships matter most. Can you remember watching the TV on that night um, on the 11th of September? Was it 2001? As we watched the planes going into the buildings, we watched the buildings coming down, we saw the, the terrible carnage that happened. On that day, in those planes, in those buildings, on the ground, in the last moments of their lives, thousands of human beings, like us, realized that none of the other stuff really mattered. They wanted, in their last moments of life, to reach out, trying to make phone calls, to reach out to their families, to their partners, to their children, to their loved ones, to their friends, because relationships matter most, and that's how God made us. Why do we keep coming to church? What actually keeps us coming every Sunday morning? As Paul was saying earlier on this morning, that was the first morning he had to set the alarm for a while. Yeah, you have to set it again tomorrow, mate. <laughs> Why do we keep coming? Is it the worship? Maybe it's because, you know, we like our worship being led by somebody who looks like Jimmy Dornan, you know. <laughs> Maybe it's, he's definitely going to keep the beard now. <laughs> Maybe, it's... Maybe it's the teaching, obviously not this morning. But maybe it's because Paul moves us to tears when he tries to speak Northern Irish. <laughs> uh, maybe it's for the donuts and the coffee. Well, you know, it's probably all of those things, to be honest. But at the core of it, we come here because of the people. It's because of the relationships that we have with people here. What is it that builds those relationships? It's the things we do together. It's worshipping, it's serving, it's praying, it's maybe working in rockets or sparklers, it's the guys who set up in the mornings. Thank you, Burger, for sorting out my iPad. <laughs> and I will mind your dog for two weeks in the summer. That's a promise. I have nothing else to do all summer anyway. Uh, maybe it's doing coffee, maybe it's being at the door, maybe it's looking for the person who's new and who's a bit lonely and a bit nervous. It's living our faith together, and that's what brings us to church. Those are the relationships that keep us coming. Next weekend, there'll be lots more opportunities to be together, and not just praying, but listening for God's voice. Because we are his children, and he wants us to spend time with him, believe it or not, I think God actually likes us. And he created us because he wanted to. He created us for his pleasure. Anybody old enough to remember the film Chariots of Fire? It's one of my favorite films. It would be, I think it would be in my top five. It tells the story of a couple of runners, but one of them was Eric Little, a Scotsman. And Eric was a young medical graduate and a Christian. And Eric had heard God's call to missionary work in China. And he died in a Japanese prisoner of war camp in 1941, where he was trying to help others and serve others. And that was never really publicized very much. But he was also known as the runner who refused to run on Sunday in the Olympics. Different time and a different era. But Eric was known for refusing to run. And that was really the core of what the film was about. <clears throat> 
But Eric's running caused him some problems with his, his sister. Anybody got a big sister who bosses them around? I don't have. It's great. Um, but Eric's sister felt that his, his running was getting in the way of his Christian work. And she constantly told him off. And I don't know how accurately, accurately that's represented in the film. But there's one bit in the film where she's really going on at him. And he turned up late for a, a meeting. And uh, he's supposed to be speaking at something, and he's turned up late. And at the end of the meeting, he says, look, let's go for a walk. And he takes his sister, Jenny, up. And it's, it's portrayed as just up beside Edinburgh Castle. And he turns and he speaks to her. And I think it's one of the most powerful moments in the film. He says to her, Jenny, Jenny, I, ca I can't do the Scottish accent. It would be worse than Paul saying, par shower. <laughs> but he says, Jenny, Jenny, I believe God made me for a purpose for China. But he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. See, God made us for work, for worship, to be with him. But all of that comes together in the fact that he's God. And he made us because he wanted to. He takes pleasure in us like we take pleasure in our children or our grandchildren. In all of his creation, we are the most special. That's not what Paul meant when he said I was a special teacher, was it? <laughs> We're special. We're at the center of his creation. How do we know this? When God created everything, he spoke it into existence. It was created by the power of his word. Eight times in Genesis chapter 1, it says God spoke. And the various parts of creation were called into being. But here's the difference. When he created us, his children, in his own image, he got his hands dirty. Because in chapter 2, we get a bit more detail about the creation of man. And we see that God formed man out of dirt from the ground and blew into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man came alive, a living soul. God got down and made us with his hands. Our anthropology doesn't start with the fall. It starts with the kiss of a loving father. We're created in God's image. That image, of course, has been disfigured with sin. We know that. That's been passed down from generation to generation, and we can see the results every day. We just have to listen to the news. But it can be cured, and it has been cured, and the Father supplied the cure himself through a transfusion of his own blood. In order to bring his creation back to himself, he sent his very best. In fact, he came himself. And even in our sinfulness, we still keep something of the image of God. It's broken, it's distorted, it's corrupted, but there's still something there. God came to us in the garden in the cool of the day, and maybe we would come running at the sound of his voice, and he would catch us and throw us in the air as a loving parent. And then we fell. We knew we were naked. We felt ashamed. We tried to cover ourselves, and we hid, and we still do. But after we sinned, he still came in the cool of the day. We heard his voice. He still came. Not because of our goodness, but because we were his children and he loved us. Just over 23 years ago, I was teaching my first class and I asked the children to write a poem describing an emotion by giving it a color and a size and a smell and a taste and a sound. 
really useful educationally, obviously. But a wee girl in the class called Elspeth, she wrote her poem and she chose uh, the emotion of happiness. And her choice of sound metaphor was really lovely. She wrote, happiness sounds like my daddy's car coming down the drive at night. You see, maybe somewhere in our DNA of every human, there's something that still remembers Eden. Still remembers, there's still a faint recollection of footsteps on leaves in the cool of the day, of a voice calling, of our hearts jumping as we run to our Father. All of creation longs for Eden. There's an ache in us that longs for it. But God has something better for us where once again we'll hear his footsteps and his voice calling and everything will be clear and everything will be all right. See, he's our God. He made us to be special and he loves us. He's our savior and he came for us to bring us to himself. He's our father. We can hear his footsteps and he wants us to run to him. He wants us to run to him because he wants us to be whole. Again, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? See, when we're outside of the relationship with God that he created us for, then we're not complete, we're not whole, but he wants us to be. In the introduction to the message that Eugene Peterson wrote, he says this, Genesis gets us off on the right foot. Genesis pulls us into a sense of reality that's God-shaped and God-filled, gives us a vocabulary for speaking accurately about our lives, where we come from, where we're going to, what we think and what we do, the people we live with and how to get along with them, the troubles we are in, and the blessings that keep arriving. Genesis 1 and 2 talk a lot about us being created in the image of God. It's spelled out for us three times. That's what makes us special, that we're created in God's image. But there's something wrong. We're not whole. We're hurting. We're broken. We're damaged. But this is the key. In order to be whole, we have to be real. I don't know about you, but if you were here on the Sunday before Christmas, I thought it was a really powerful morning and evening. But that morning in particular... As we watched our children taking part, it wasn't just another, I mean, you know, we do three nativity plays in school every Christmas and a carol service, but that was different. That Sunday morning, we watched our children. We knew that they believed everything and they were excited about everything that they were doing. They were celebrating, listening to the songs, seeing the passion they put into the drama and the readings. It was, I don't know about you, but I was standing with tears running down my face as they all walked down singing, Oh Holy Night. It was incredible. That was real, and that was what makes us whole. And we even had Morgan Freeman's name on the program. It was, you see, as a church that's very much a community of people who care for each other, and for those on the outside, we've been given a picture of Carrickfergus Vineyard as a hospital. That's been talked about many times. That's a powerful and amazing place to be associated with. But you know what? We don't stay in hospital forever. Many of us here would, would feel that we've been hurt, maybe by others, maybe by the church, 
by the circumstances of life or by the mistakes we've made by ourselves. But God would have us find our identity in him and in Jesus, not in our hurt or our mistakes of the past. Another word that I think is, is coming to us at the minute is rehabilitation. Maybe it's time to leave the hospital. Maybe it's time to get back to being the people in the church that God wants us to be. And to make this completely personal, I'm, I'm trying this morning to practice what I'm teaching. Because the last time I spoke in church was February 2006. I want to finish with a very brief reading. It was written a while ago, but it's been brought back to me very recently. It's inspired by the first two verses of 1 Samuel chapter 22. So could I ask you, would you mind closing your eyes and just listening? I look much better with your eyes closed anyway. But I want you to listen, and I pray that, that my voice won't be the only voice you hear this morning. <clears throat> Imagine a cave in the wilderness where David, who was hunted, hated, misunderstood, rejected, and outcast, takes refuge. Imagine that the word spreads that David's there, and they come to him. Everyone who's hunted, hated, misunderstood, rejected, and outcast comes to him in that cave. Everyone who's in debt and has no way to pay it back comes to David in that cave. Everyone who's distressed, worried, depressed, unable to cope anymore comes to him in that cave. Everyone who is oppressed by the number of times they failed comes to David in that cave. And they find acceptance and belonging and value and forgiveness and a way back and a new start and restoration and a purpose and a role. And God molded them into a mighty army and his voice was heard in them. Imagine a church like that cave. Imagine a church that is real. Imagine a church where church is not simply the game that we play on Sunday morning. Imagine a church where we, where we model real, gritty, difficult faith in front of our children and our friends and the others looking on. To those who have seen Christianity that doesn't attract them, but who need to see authentic, genuine, robust, yet attractive faith. Imagine a church that we come to on Sunday morning because we've had a terrible week and we're hurting, struggling, even broken. Not a church that we stay away from because of those things. Imagine a church when we believe it all, but we don't feel any of it, but we still come because we know that our brothers and sisters will ask and listen and care and stand beside us in God's presence. And their arm around us is his arm around us. Imagine a church where we're prepared not only to give of ourselves to others, but also to receive from others. Even if it means admitting our weakness, making ourselves vulnerable, letting our pain be seen. Imagine a church that hears God's voice, listens to what he says, and believes that only his will matters. Imagine a church that knows God has called it into existence at just the right time, in just the right place, to be his voice 
his presence, his hands, and his love to the watching, listening, needing generation. Imagine a church where people don't look around and wait for the leaders or the others to show the love and compassion of the kingdom. They believe that God is asking them to do it, and they look for the ways. Imagine a church that recognizes and humbly acknowledges that it makes mistakes, misses people, fails, often lets God down. Imagine the church with the courage to, to admit that it can't be everything that everyone needs, that sometimes individuals need to look to have their needs met somewhere else, but that church still loves them and prays for them and with them and is always open. Imagine a church where people don't stop coming because they don't like something, but they hold on to God's call to be committed there until he calls them somewhere else. Imagine a church where people who are hurting or have been hurt don't blame the church, but rather see the church as the place to come to through their time of hurt and pain. Imagine a church where the person who asks, how are you, really wants to know the answer and isn't looking over your shoulder for somebody else to talk to. Where the person who's asked the question doesn't just say, oh, I'm fine, because he or she knows that it matters. Because the person asking them has asked God first and has followed his leading and is allowing God to minister into the lives of others. Imagine a church where we stop hiding behind our comfortable, smug, safe self-sufficiency and live the truth, where we make ourselves accountable to God and to our brothers and sisters here in life groups, in service, in friendships, in love. Imagine a church who not only believe what God says, but does what God is, and knows that anything done without love is worthless. Imagine a cave. Imagine a church. Imagine it's Carrick Fergus Vineyard. Imagine it's you and me. Imagine we're hearing the voice of God. Thank you.